We're going to be reading this morning from the book of 2 Timothy. So if you have a Bible with you, please take the time to open up. If you don't have a Bible with you today and you'd like to read along, we would encourage you to. We have a team of people ready to bring a Bible to you. Just throw your hand up and they will bring it to you. Um, If you would like to keep this Bible, please do. It is our gift to you. We consider the, the word of God, these scriptures, to be very important and we would love for you to have the chance to read that. So once again, we're looking in 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people, Jump with me to verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God to us. So this is our second week of a three-week Bible series. Last week we talked about, does the Bible have authority? If so, where does it come from? And we talked about how God is the one that gives the Bible authority. Today we're going to be answering the question, is the Bible reliable at all? I have the unique opportunity of introducing Dr. Wayne Baxter. He's the Associate Professor of New Testament uh, Theology and Greek. Not only that, he was my New Testament and Greek professor. What that means is he knows all my secrets of my studies. Every Tuesday morning, was a, you either studied and you had a good Greek quiz or you were looking at a page of chicken scratch almost because you didn't really understand what was on there because you didn't study. So I learned how to study well. Um, he, he, he took his PhD at McMaster University in, in uh, religious studies and we have a really cool opportunity today to hear from him. So after the video, give him a warm welcome. The Bible's an important book, but it's really long. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but altogether they tell one unified story. So, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam, 
and they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself. So now humanity's presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return.
The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. Okay, so that's the story of the Bible. And it brings all of these books together. But what's interesting is that each book contains a different kind of literature that contributes to the story in a unique way. And that's what the next video will begin to explore. Good morning. So I'm excited to be here. Uh, Your reputation precedes you. One of my colleagues, Stan Fowler, was here, I think, back in the spring or something, and he spoke very well of you. So he was pumping you up and and giving you a lot of shout-outs and stuff like that. So I'm I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And I do uh, bring you greetings from my school, Heritage College and Seminary. I've been there five years, and uh, God has been doing some great things, just amazing things at our school. And we're grateful because at a time when... Uh, A lot of Bible colleges, certainly in Canada, uh, in these last 10 years have been closing down, or at the very least, their numbers have been on the decline. Uh, God has blessed us, and we know it's God. I started there five years ago, and at the seminary, that's where I teach New Testament and Greek, uh, students like Jeremiah. Five years ago, our head count was 146, and then this fall is 232. So God's really blessing us, and uh, yeah, just give all the praise. Uh, to him, for sure. So uh, there is a, uh, a popular worship song that Matt Redman, he's written tons, of course, and he wrote this one, I think it was in, in 2013, and there's a line in that song that goes like this, For all your goodness, I will keep on singing. Right. 10,000 reasons, right? There are ten, and he was being a minimalist, I think, that there's really more than 10,000 reasons to bless God, to praise God. Well, let me flip that around. I think that there are thousands, if not 10,000 questions that we can ask of the Bible. Like, there's tons and tons and tons of questions like, who wrote the Bible? How did, was the Bible written? When was the Bible written? Why are there so many translations? Are there contradictions in the Bible? All these sorts of questions. And you know what? Questions are good. Like, we need to ask questions uh, of the Bible. We need to ask questions of our faith. We need to ask questions of the traditions that we hold on to. There's nothing wrong with questions. I encourage my students all the time to have questions. Um, but the thing is, though, is that if the questions are kind of launched from a heart that's kind of malicious, kind of close-minded, then that can be an issue. A guy by the name of Bart Ehrman, who uh, he speaks all over, he's a very well-known scholar of early Christianity. He did his PhD at Princeton. Uh, he now teaches, well, for decades, he's been teaching at North Carolina, Chapel Hill University there. And uh, he grew up 
in a Christian home, in an evangelical home. And so all the stuff that most of you guys have been taught and know and believe, so did he. Then he went off to do his Ph.D., and he turned away from the faith, became uh, agnostic and a very aggressive, very rigorous agnostic, because now he kind of makes it his unwritten goal and aim uh, to undermine Christianity, to undermine historic Christianity, to undermine the faith of many Christians that come and sit in his class, to attack the Bible, which he does regularly. He just, he tours. That's what he does. And this is one of the things that he said about the Bible. He says, the Bible is not this kind of inerrant guide to our lives, among other things, I've been pointing out, in many places, we don't even know what the original words of the Bible actually were. Everybody's favorite theologian, Ricky Gervais, says this, although he says it in a British accent, and I'm not going to try and mind. It's almost as if the Bible is written by racist, sexist, homophobic, violent, sexually frustrated men instead of a loving God. There's thousands of questions we can pose to the Bible, and for the sake of time, we're not going to look at a thousand, but I've just narrowed it to three questions, and uh, I've given you handouts because there's a lot, and so if you don't have a handout, I'm sure the usher will give you a handout. So everything uh, that I'm saying, by and large, is on that sheet, so you don't have to try and write everything down. It's there, so you can just kind of listen and um, take that home and put it as an insert into your Bible. But before we continue, I'd like to pray for our time, so please, uh, let's, let's bow and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, that you have gathered us together this morning, and there are millions of Christians gathering together um, to worship you, and so that is what we do here, and as we've worshipped you musically, Lord, as we've worshipped you through the giving of tithes and offerings and through intercessory prayer, So now, Lord, the focus of our worship turns to worshiping you through the preaching of your text and through the reflection of what will be going on in our hearts and our minds. Lord, would you guide us, guide the words that come out of my mouth, guide guide the thoughts and reflections that are going on right now amongst your people. Would you speak very clearly, Lord, this morning? Uh, Encourage those who need to be encouraged, strengthen those who need to be strengthened, rebuke those who need to be rebuked. Uh, But all things for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first question that I want to look at uh, this morning is this. How do we know the Bible isn't just like every other book ever written? How do we know that? Right, Because in the history of humanity, there have been millions of books written. I've written four books. Probably the four best books ever. No, we won't say that, but... How do we know that the Bible isn't just like one of our books? You know, a book that I've written or a book that John Grisham has written or a book that Stephen King is Like, how do we know? Like, what is it about the Bible that sets it apart from all these other books that have been written? Well, when we write a book, whether it's me or, or Stephen King or whomever, we write from within. Right? Like, we have this idea or we have this fresh insight uh, we have this new look on something or some passion, some burden, and we write from that. So we, we write from within. The Bible is different. The biblical authors write from without. Right? God is moving them to write 
his words. And the biblical authors, they themselves make this claim. So this is not what we as Christians a thousand years removed or two thousand years removed say, oh yeah, they wrote inspired. No, no, no. The biblical authors make that claim. I've given you tons of scripture. I could multiply that, uh, but I want to make your inserts short. And so I'm just going to pull out a few of these. So the Bible shows us that God spoke directly to and through his servants. In the book of Numbers, Uh, People are starting to rebel and push back against uh, Moses' leadership over the people. So this is what we read in Numbers 12. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. Uh, When the two of them stepped forward, he he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Paul, right? Paul is writing to the Galatian church. And the Galatians, there are people there who are, who are attacking Paul's authority. Like, who does Paul think he is? He's just a leader. He's just a church guy. Who does he think he is? And so Paul says this. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, in the gospel... That I preached, it's not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Right? The Bible shows us that God spoke directly to and through his servants. The Bible shows us that the biblical authors were fully aware that this was going on. They were fully aware that God was speaking to them and through them. So, for example, Jeremiah... Jeremiah, in his day, there were people, prophets, who were speaking to the Israelites. And so Jeremiah will contrast himself with these supposed prophets. And on one instance, he says this, But which of them, false prophets, has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? Jeremiah has, that's the implicit answer, but not them, not these false prophets. David, right? David, the last words of David are recorded in 2 Samuel. Listen to the words of David. The inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. Jeremiah, again, Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. So he goes out and he's, God's giving him messages and he's speaking these messages, being obedient to God by speaking what God gives him. The problem is it's bringing him reproach. It's bringing him persecution. He doesn't like that. And so he says, but if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, because it's causing him all this trouble. So I just won't say it. He can give it to me. I'm, not just gonna, I'm just not going to speak anything like that. If I say I will not speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. The word of the Lord comes so strongly to Jeremiah that if he tries to hold it in, he can't. It's a fire. 
burning inside him. He's got to let it out because God's given him these words, not to hold on, but to give to the people of God. Jesus believed that God spoke to the Old Testament prophets. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he responds to the first temptation by quoting Scripture. It is written, Jesus said, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So how do we know the Bible isn't just like every other book? Because the biblical authors explicitly claim to be divinely inspired servants of the Lord. I've written books and I don't claim that. I know that's not what's going on. God might use, prayerfully, hopefully God uses what I've written to help people, to encourage people, to strengthen people. But I know God's not speaking to me directly as I'm writing whatever I'm writing. That's the first question. Question two. Okay, fine. But how do we know that God's messages didn't include unintended mistakes by the human authors? Fine. God spoke to these authors. And so they, being faithful, trying to be faithful, now share these words with people. But how do we know that, you know what, some of their own stuff, some of their own earthly, fleshly insights, uh, Some of their thinking isn't mixed in to this revelation from God. So that now it's like, oh, now we got some of God's words mixed in with Jeremiah's own little insights. How do we know? So that there's maybe some errors mixed in. Unintended errors mixed in with the message. How do we know that's not the case? God definitively yet mysteriously moved upon the biblical authors using their personalities gifts and experiences in such a way as to ensure that they wrote only his words. Right? He moved upon them in such a way as to ensure that, yes, they wrote out of their own experience, their own abilities, their own personality. That's why when you open up the book, there's different styles. Like God didn't, it wasn't divine dictation. Because if there was divine dictation, there'd just be one style from Genesis to Revelation, God's style. There's not. There's various literary styles. Matthew writes different from Paul. Paul writes different from John. John writes different from Peter and so on and so forth. God allowed for that individuality, but nevertheless, his Holy Spirit moved on each one in such a way as to ensure that despite that freedom, they wrote only his words. Listen to what Peter says. The Apostle Peter says this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He does not go into specific detail, the mechanics for how it is that God moved upon them, how it is the Holy Spirit carried along. He doesn't go into that. He just simply says, hey, the Holy Spirit carried them along. However that works out, we do know the the fruit of that, the end result of that, is that they wrote only his words because they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The New Testament authors were fully aware of their own divine inspiration. Right? That's not something we throw back on them. Well, Paul didn't really realize that he was divinely inspired. Oh, well, John didn't really know that. Well, Pete, No, no, no. Listen to their own words. Like, listen to what they say. They're telling you what they believe. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, 
says this, If anyone thinks they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. Not simply apostolic advice, apostolic wisdom. I have a lot of wise things to share with you. No, what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. That's Paul on Paul. What about Peter on Paul? Listen to what Peter says on Paul. Second Peter. <clears throat> Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Peter implies clearly that what Paul writes is scripture. He doesn't say as they, they, they distort as they do the scriptures. No, as they do the other scriptures, which means Peter believes Paul is writing scripture. Paul knew Paul was writing scripture. So that's Peter on Paul. Listen to Paul on Luke. So uh, Paul is writing Timothy. And then Paul, in his letter to Timothy, quotes Scripture. He says, For Scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy 25. And he says, And, so he has that Scripture quote from Deuteronomy, And the worker deserves his wages. Where does that come from? Luke 10.7. So Scripture includes Luke 10.7. So Paul believes he's inspired. Peter believes Paul is inspired. Paul believes Luke's inspired. Like the writers knew. They were fully aware that they were writing under divine inspiration. So God definitively yet mysteriously moved upon the biblical authors using their personalities and gifts and experiences in such a way as to ensure that they wrote only his words. That's the second question. Third question. How do we know that the copies that we now have are fully trustworthy? Right? How do we know that? Because the reality is, look, these texts, as Bart Ehrman loves to point out, these texts were written, you know, 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. And the reality is, back in that time, they're written on paper, that, uh, like parchment and animal skins that only has a lifetime of about a couple decades. And then it disintegrates, especially if it's being used, as scripture scrolls are being used. And so as it begins to disintegrate, what do you do? Then you copy it. Right? You copy it for your own people. And somebody else over there copies it and copies it. And then this disintegrates, but we have a copy. And then your copy gets copied. And then that copy gets copied. And so on and so on and so on and so on and so forth. So all we have are copies and copies of copies and copies of copies of copies. Like, we don't have the original, which Airmen, those guys love to point out. So fine, fine, okay. So um, God has revealed, and he speaks directly to his servants, Matthew, Mark, Luke, David, Moses, and so on, fine. And what they wrote, what came off their quill, was divinely inspired and inerrant, fine, but let's, we don't have that. So, hey, all bets off. All bets off. That's the way it originally was. I'll give you that. But now all bets off. All we have are these copies. So why should we simply trust a copy? So there's two parts to this question, to the answer to this question. The first one has to do with canonization. Right? The canon, not double N canon, like 
not talking about that. We're talking about canon with one N, which basically refers to a rule. Right? The canon is the rule of faith. This is the ultimate authority, the ultimate rule of faith. That's the first part. And so we have evidence. Again, when we talk about these, script, these scriptures, these texts being put together, this is not something that happened 2,000 years later. Some guys say, hey, let's look at what Moses wrote. Let's put it together with what David wrote. No, no, no. Like the biblical authors themselves, if you read them carefully, they are themselves starting to gather together these sacred texts. So, for example, Moses, right? Moses wrote the first uh, five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, except when he wrote it, it was just one big book. It wasn't segmented like that. That comes later, like chapters and verses. That comes later to make it user-friendly. But when he first wrote it, it was just one big book, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, one big book. Okay, so at the end of his life... This is what we read. Take this book of the law. That's, he's referring to what he wrote. Take this book of the law, telling his, his successors and the people of God, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. So the Ark of the Covenant, like that, is, that represents the, the manifest presence of the Holy God. Right? And so the Ark of the Covenant, representing the manifest presence of the Holy God, is put into the temple. And where the ark is, is holy. That's sacred. It's the ark. It represents the manifest presence of God. Moses writes this book and says, put it beside the ark. Okay? So that's what Moses thinks of what he's writing. Joshua, at the end of his life, that's his success, Moses' successor, Joshua, at the end of his life, this is what we read. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people... And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law. That was beside the Ark of the Covenant. So the stuff that Joshua is doing, he's actually adding to what Moses wrote. So you got to take it from the Ark and write his stuff now. And add it to what Moses had already set aside and put by the precious Ark, the Holy Ark of the Covenant. Daniel is writing in exile. So now we're looking at the 6th century B.C., uh, maybe a thousand years or so after Moses and Joshua. And this is what we read. In the first year of King Darius' reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem is going to last 70 years. So he's reading Scripture and the scripture that he refers to is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah and Daniel were approximate contemporaries, right? Je Jeremiah was only maybe 40 years older than Daniel. But what Jeremiah wrote is scripture added to Moses and Joshua and so on and so forth. And then we have Jesus, the words of Jesus after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the uh, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? They have that little power walk there at the end of Luke. And Jesus says to them, because uh, they're still confused, right? They're still not sure, you know, he said this, now he's dead, what's going on? And so he's trying to, Jesus is clearing up their confusion, and this is what he says. He says, this is what I told you guys while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. 
So the law of Moses, the prophets, Joshua, Jeremiah, and so on and so forth, the Psalms, like David. So the authors, even at that time, are gathering together these texts. They're recognizing these are sacred texts. These are holy texts. These are divinely revealed, divinely inspired texts. We need to put them together. So they're already in their time putting them together. This isn't something that we 1,500 years later go, oh, let's put them together. They've been putting them together for us. So that's the evidence of the canonization process in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. The process for the New Testament, <clears throat> we see that a little bit differently. So the first stage <clears throat> has to do um, with the life and activities of Jesus, right? So Jesus comes on the scene, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and he dies, and he's raised again. So that's basically late 20s to early 30s. And that's the first stage. The second stage is when his disciples, the apostles, and their followers preach about Jesus. Right? So that's from 30, largely from the 30s to the 60s. The third stage has to do with the written text. So the texts of the New Testament were largely, not entirely, but largely written from the 40s to the 70s. That's the third stage. And then the fourth stage is the gathering together of these written texts. And again, this gathering together, it's not like it took place a thousand years after the fact. It actually begins in the first century. At the end of the first century, we have church fathers like Ignatius and Polycarp and Clement of Rome who quote the apostles and hold them up as having written scripture. So they're already being gathered in the late first century. So this gathering takes place over time. But it starts to be gathered, the New Testament text starts to be gathered in the beginning, at the end of the first century, and on to the second and third, and so on. So, it's not us moderns who randomly look at these texts and say, oh yeah, well, let's take this text and this text and put them together and form a, form a Bible. But the biblical authors themselves recognize that God has been speaking to specific individuals giving them his words for the people of God. We need to gather these things together and put them into a sacred text. So that's the first part in response to this answer. Like, okay, all we have is copies. Like, uh, like uh, it's not that, it's not that uh, insurmountable. And we can talk about canonization, how that works. We can talk about that after if you like, but uh, that's the one part. But the second part to this answer has to do with the results of text criticism. So text criticism, $20 word, basically meaning uh, how to get at the original of a written text. How do we get to the original words that were written? Um, because whether we're dealing with philosophy, philosophy texts, ancient philosophy texts, ancient medical texts, ancient mathematical texts, you know, going back to Socrates and Plato and Hippocantus and all these texts, guess what? All we have are copies. I don't care what your field is, science, whatever your field is, math, all we have are copies. That's all we have by virtue of where we are on this historical timeline. All we have is copies. So then what we do, or what text critics do, is we take, there's two key things for text criticism. How many copies do you have? Right, because you're copying things, as I said before, you're copying things. How many copies do you have? Because then you can compare copies. You don't just want one copy because maybe somebody got it wrong. And then you're screwed, right? So you want copies so you can compare copies and wordings of copies. But then the other thing you look at is, what's the time interval between the original and the copy? 
and the earliest copy. So you want, obviously, you want a very narrow time interval. And so we take somebody like Plato and the Republic. Not Pluto, the Disney character, but Plato, the Republic. Although I've read parts of that, and he might as well be Pluto. But anyway, um, so Plato, the Republic, there's like seven copies, which is good, because then you can match, and okay, what matches up, so we can get to the original. And the interval between when Plato wrote and the earliest copy is 1,200 years. It's kind of big, but okay. But let's face it, nobody, if you've ever taken Plato or referred to philosophy and that kind of thing, nobody ever talks about, well, how do we know Plato really wrote this? Because, you know, you only got seven, seven manuscripts. Like, how do we know? Maybe somebody else injected their thing into Plato, right? Nobody ever talks about that. We just take it for granted. Well, then you have Homer, not Simpson, but Homer and the Iliad, right? That's his big thing, the Iliad. And so with that one, we've got like 643 manuscript copies. That's awesome. Because now you can really, 643, you can, can compare and surely you can get to the original, right? 643 copies, that's a lot. And the time interval is only 500 years. That's pretty good. Right? So that, no wonder nobody ever says, well, how do we know Homer really wrote that? Well, nobody says it because, look, we got 643 copies, time interval, 500 years. Like, that's really good. So nobody ever says that. How do we know Homer really wrote that part of the Iliad? Nobody ever says that. Okay, so with the New Testament, the, uh, the, the latest text, well, one of the latest texts in the New Testament is the Gospel of John. And typically, we date John to about 90, 80, 90 A.D., right? The earliest copy, and it's not a full copy of John's Gospel, it's a partial copy, um, dates, carbon dates, to a 130. So 40 years. That's within a lifetime, right? So 40-year gap, not 500, not 1,200, 40 years between the original and the copy. And then you have other copies that are maybe 140 or 240, like all kinds of copies that are pretty close, much closer than with regards to, say, Homer, where the closest copy is 500 years. So you have lots of early, early copies, very narrow interval gap. And then in terms of number of manuscripts, well, pick your language. Which one do you want to choose? If you go with Greek manuscripts, you have more than 5,000, not 643, not seven. Over 5,000. And if you go Latin manuscripts, then you have another 8,000. So you have 13,000, more than 13,000 copies of the New Testament. But yet you always hear this refrain, well, how do we know that Matthew really wrote that? How do you know that? Like, come on. Let's be real, okay? At least be consistent and start criticizing every single other text that's out there. Because they pale in comparison to the evidence that we have in terms of originality and the copies and all that kind of stuff in regards to tech criticism. They pale ridiculously. So in light of all that, you know what? In light of all that, believe the Bible. Right? Believe the Bible. Because the evidence completely tilts uh, for us. Like because of its divine origin, because of its divine inspiration, because of how God directed it, it directed the act of its transmission, believe the Bible. Right? So what we have... Scripture, everything that it asserts, that it asserts, is true. It's true, and it's completely, and it's fully trustworthy for faith and practice. So the upshot of all that is basically, you know what, read your Bible, 
Right? Read your Bible. Because people say, oh, you know, if only I could hear God. <laughs> if you want to have an encounter with God, clear a block of time, whether it's morning, if you're a morning person, or late at night, if you're a night owl, or in the afternoon, clear a block of time. Clear your appointments. Clear it all. And drill down into the text. Prayerfully drill down into the text. Read it. Get into it. And you'll hear from God. You'll hear from God. Because in the Bible, this is the word of the Lord. So read your Bible. Learn your Bible. If you want to grow in your faith, you got to learn your Bible. We have to learn the Bible. And then apply your Bible. This isn't just simply being like a theological brain on a stick. Like, God wants us to become like Jesus. Well, the way we become like Jesus is by allowing the Holy Spirit to take what we're reading and meditating on and applying it to our hearts and applying it to our minds so that we become more and more like Jesus. Rhonda had a choice to make. She was raised in a dark and broken home, and she suffered a lot of abuse at the hands of her loved ones. And she carried these scars, for she was scarred. She carried these scars around for many years. Rhonda became a Christian and started studying the Bible. And as she studied God's Word, she began to face the difficult reality that she needed to let go of those hurts and extend forgiveness. This reality came with many prayers and tears. God's Word was penetrating Rhonda's heart. And the Holy Spirit was bringing her to the reality of the forgiveness she had experienced when she confessed her sins and received Jesus as Lord. And this is how Rhonda put it. Studying the Bible helped me better understand God's truth. And God opened my eyes to know what it means to truly forgive someone and walk in freedom from the pains of the past. God enabled me to take the steps to forgive a person whom I had been withholding forgiveness for decades, something I never thought I could do. Read the Bible, learn the Bible, apply the Bible, because this is the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we bow in your presence thanking you that uh, you are an awesome God. You are such an awesome God, and as we can sing uh, praises to you and pray, and, and, and Lord, you're not mute. You're not mute. You've communicated to us for all times your word, and your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and sometimes uh, your word brings us uh, guilt, feelings of conviction over sins in our lives. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing, Lord. Because following Jesus isn't simply a bed of roses and good things all the time. Sometimes you have some harsh, difficult things to say to each one of us in order to help bring us around and to help bring us into deeper and deeper Christ-likeness. So we are so grateful, Lord, for, for giving us your word And that as your Holy Spirit works his word, the word that he's inspired into our hearts and into our minds, that you change us. Your plan for all of us here is the same. It's to be like Jesus. And so we're grateful for that, Lord. 
We thank you. Bless, Lord, this congregation. Bless this church as they endeavor to follow you. Would you pour out abundant blessing upon the leadership and upon the small groups and upon uh, the people, this flock, the church of the city. Would you bless the mighty God in Jesus' name.